Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. We're dealing with the covenant of grace. We uh, just finished the fall of man, right? Was that our last chapter? Should have been, right? And uh, when we get into the covenant of grace, uh, it's really a study of redemption after the fall. After the fall of man, we have uh, some good news here. Um, covenant uh, kind of theology is kind of distinctive, um, definitely in the Westminster Confession. Um, as, as you study redemption, of course, this is where you get in covenant. There's a lot of different understandings on, on covenant uh, when you look at it, but... Uh, you see a little bit of it uh, in Augustine. Um, then at the time of Calvin, uh, it's kind of like a, a primordial form at, at that time. You, you didn't really see it really in its uh, full-blown format. It was really not the center of theological thinking at that time. But it actually can go back, of course it goes back scripturally, we know Old Testament, New Testament, we'll be looking at that, but it really wasn't uh, a pressing issue until the period following uh, the early Reformation. And so when the article was written, whenever these confessions were uh, being put together, that's whenever there were some writings going on at that time anyway. Uh, there was a Dutch... Dutchman that uh, had a work on that subject uh, dealing with the covenant. So it really wasn't until the, the, the 17th century and the 1600s that it uh, really kind of blew uh, out pretty big. But even before that, you look at Zwingli and um, uh, Calvin and uh, Bullinger. Uh, they, they wrote on it. And of course, by the time it got to the Puritans, uh, it was um, pretty heavy. It was not on the other side of the Reformation where uh, Lutheranism was. Uh, that was not um, an issue that they really dealt with. It's really on the Reform side that you think of this theology and where it was um, articulated. So it, it's significant. Um, it's, it's definitely um, quite a turning point in, in Reformed theology and the way that it's constructed. And of course, there are people inside Reformed theology or Calvinist who would differ on some things, uh, especially covenant of works, and we'll get to that. Um, there were people also taking a decretal theology rather than covenant theology, and, and you know, there's, there's tension here involved uh, in, in those days. Um, Covenant means there's some sort of agreement that's going on. And sometimes with a lot of people, they have difficulty with man having uh, an agreement with God about that. Of course, we'll try to explain that a little bit. Um, but anyway, decretal theology is dealing with um, it's, it's all for the decrees that God has put forth, uh, even though there are covenants that are scripturally um, they stay away from the agreements. Covenant theology, I guess, really can be a uh, a softening of the decrees in a way where God comes down. So um, before we start, well, we have a word of prayer and we'll get into uh, some of these articles here and uh, kind of take scripture and see uh, how how it's formed. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening and thank you for your great grace. Thank you for your mercy and your love that um, 
we feature upon so much uh, for because of that and in your plan and in your redemption plan uh, you've uh, included us in that and uh, we thank you so much that we can gather here and just look at the things that are believed in uh, traditional Christianity and how when we go back to uh, the scripture and we see the authority on that how it formulates in our own lives and not just to have knowledge and um, getting some of the deeper things of God but uh, putting it into our lives and making it affect how we think and how we live thank you Lord for who you are and what you reveal to us in Jesus name Amen, amen. Well, the, uh, the first one here uh, as our tradition seems to be uh, working this way we just kind of uh, read it out loud and it gives us an opportunity to to praise God in that way too since we take a lot of these uh, on our Sunday mornings most of them are some of these same readings the first one under the covenant is the distance between God and the creature is so great and although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So coming off of that last one, dealing with the fall of man, here we now have a God who is so high above us. Um, and th this is the idea here. He, he's infinitely transcending uh, above man. Uh, and of course, you see man in his fall. Uh, he's a creature of dust. God created him, and of course, man fell. But here, God um, shows that he's the one that's much higher than any man can even think. Um, so, But we see this, that here's a God who is transcendent, but he desires to bend down, to stoop down to us, to, to man. Um, we could never do anything. There's nothing possibly that we could do that would deserve his attention, is there? And so after that fall of man, here it is where God, uh, who has such a great difference, a, a mighty act of condescension to to come down to us, and um, Gerstner called it a divine stoop. <laughs> um, he deals meaningfully uh, with us, but yet he's infinitely, man is infinitely beneath God, and and yet there he is, infinitely condescending. And so when you when you see that that the creature um, here, uh, even though we are to give him obedience and of course Adam and Eve were to give obedience but uh, they did not do that and there is no fruition that any creature can give to, to God uh, on their own at all and what he does is he condescends so he can enter a relationship with man there is no reason to do that other than what God's plan is about and of course, that's why you know his his love is so uh, valuable to us. Uh, a lot of people are uncomfortable with uh, the covenant idea 
because they they say if it's covenant, it kind of levels God and man. When you have a covenant, you have two parties and they make a promise and it's usually an even agreement, uh, something along that lines. And um, so they dislike that. When you think of marriage, you think of a, a marriage covenant. Or when business partners get together, there's a there's a covenant, there's a promises that they make. You know, there's an equality there that's that's involved, and um, both parties are are in on that. So some think that covenant actually lowers God, but biblically, when you look at this, and this is the general principle, is that of course we know that God is the one who instigates it. Man cannot do it at all. He cannot reconcile himself to God. We've already seen that. Uh, in the Old Testament, covenant is found. Uh, very much of the time, it's berit is the Hebrew word. It's also found in the New Testament. It's a biblical term. A lot of times when we run into Westminster Confession, there's terms that are used that may not necessarily be found in Scripture, although the principle is is found in there. But in this case, uh, it is biblical. Um, the term is uh, mentioned in Old and New Testament, and it's very valuable because it talks about the way that God deals with man, and uh, that He would uh, He would enter into that with us. That uh, that next one is kind of interesting because it deals with the covenant of works. And you're not going to find that in Scripture. And you can see the principle or idea of it, but there's a big problem with it with, uh, with a lot of people. And it's mainly the terminology. Uh, you, you really have to, you have to struggle to find, find the Scripture on that. Now, where we were just at, I actually... Ah, here's my Bible right here, of course. <laughs> All right. That's like having my glasses, you know, up here. Where yeah. are my glasses yeah, at? Oh, boy. <laughs> you find find yourself doing those kind of things oh, more yeah. and more. Um, I was just thinking, on, on that other one, we didn't, we didn't look at any scripture. I want to do that because I like this Isaiah 40, 13. So we haven't gone to number two yet. We haven't read it yet, so we're okay. We're, we're backing, backtracking here, right? Isaiah 40, 13 through 17, quite a section on the high nature of God. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Of course, he's the one that gives all of that to us, doesn't he? He teaches us. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So we get the right idea of this great God who transcends all of his creation and he condescends to man. But here we see the awesomeness of, uh, of our great God. Then uh, go to Psalm 113, 5 and 6. Never, we never can limit God at all, can we? 
Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? So, you know, who, who's liking? That was Psalm 113, 5 and 6. What could we possibly do that would deserve his attention? So that's that's kind of the idea of where, of course, Scripture would come from. I don't think anybody would, that believes in a sovereign God could uh, differ with that, although sometimes whenever <clears throat> he doesn't meet the way the, the the things the the way that we would like like it to you know we tend to um, make him less than who he is and we don't think of those kind of scriptures now the covenant of works we'll go ahead and read that <clears throat> the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience so there we get um, him entering into a covenant. Now this is where uh, there's a lot of differing in Reformed theology on the covenant of works. It, uh, like I say, it's not mentioned in Scripture. The principle could definitely be seen there. Um, we know there's no equality between God and man, taking that very first one. Yet people would say, well, this sounds like here it is, God is on the level of man here when, when he does this. But how could Adam possibly do what he was told, which you know he's told to do, and he goes ahead and, and does it? How can he still gain eternal life? You know, is there anything that he can do that he can merit this covenant? Um, God established the covenant. Uh, I, I guess in this sense, it, it doesn't say that it's a covenant, never says it's a covenant of works. Um, we don't have any real scriptural evidence. I, I checked out um, some people who teach that in, in seminaries and in theology and uh, some of the deep thinkers. And the best that we can usually get out of this, there's really not evidence scripturally uh, about saying the covenant of works. Um, some have used chapter uh, 6 of Hosea 6.17. I think I can see the principle. I really wouldn't want to beat it to, to a pulp and say this has to dogmatically be believed. But the fact is, is that God told Adam not to do something. You do everything else, but don't do this. And so it's a matter of uh, command and obedience. So this is how this would be taken as a covenant of works. When it's taken that way, I don't uh, think there's a real problem with that. It shouldn't be. Hosea 6, 7, um, somebody uses this verse. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. And so that could be a pretty good verse for this particular one. The ones that uh, have used this uh, use it to uh, to verify it. B.B. Warfield is the one who used Hosea 6.17 or 6.7. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Uh, is that you know is that the law? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, my version has men. Does it ever, anyone else have Adam in theirs? Mm -hmm. Okay. Adam. 
Mm-hmm. And Adam or means man, man. Yeah. or men. So good point. Yeah. And that can be translated that way. And you're right. Some of them will read it that way in their translations. Right. And you said Hosea six. Hosea six seven. seven. Do you have? Yeah. Like Adam. Adam. Do, do you? Is yours ESV? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So most of us probably do have Adam. And that's the way it seems to be translated the most. But it, it definitely can mean man, too. And that, that's an argument on, on the other side. Um, Genesis 2.17 is, is probably something as about as close as we can get to that, uh, too. Uh, obviously, you know, we're familiar with this. The, Seventeen, it says, "But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die." And so, I myself don't see a problem with this covenant of works, even though that terminology is seems to be the biggest problem where people are are at. And I think it, it's it's the grace of God to even to give that. I think graciousness is in all involved here, right to its very core. Um, and I, I, I guess really the, the, the people who wrote Westminster Confession, maybe they could have stressed it a little bit more on the, the biblical aspect. Now, there are some people in the Reformed theology that are well-respected, like John Murray. He has an objection to it. Uh, he does not like the terminology whatsoever, and uh, he says it's because of, of the language that's used here, and obviously that would be the the, the works. But um, he said that it needs to be adjusted, uh, needs to be an adjustment. Um, he says it's he wanted to call it the covenant of life, and uh, so that's what he kind of referred to it. Uh, matter of fact, in the shorter catechism, Westminster Confession, and then the catechism, they actually use uh, that terminology, I do believe, the covenant of life. And he wound up using it called the uh, Adamic administration. Hmm. <laughs> so um, it's I, I God see, dealing with I that. Do, see the do, you, do you see that? Well, because if you call the Mosaic Covenant a covenant of works, that makes sense because you're sort of working up to something that you don't have. They're working up to have life, even though obviously it's right. at the end of the day pointing them to Christ. But Adam already has life. Yeah, he's already sense. right. So right, and and that's again that's another argument right. that that is used, and you know, so I don't dogmatically press it either way, but. Um, I, I think that that's a good point that, that is helpful there. And so it's like, you know, well, why are we uh, dealing with this? Well, when you have a covenant, you, you actually have two parties, right? And then you have a promise that they make. And then you have a condition. And then you have the penalty if you don't come through with it uh, often. So um, there... Um, Palmer Robertson, of course, he wrote a book uh, dealing with the five points of Calvinism and written several, many books. But um, I think he referred to it as the covenant of creation. Uh, so you can see it's it, and it always comes back to, to the language of it. Let's get to the next one.
not. Looks to me like it's one of the clearest statements of this is Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you, says if you do these, will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you, and all these blessings shall come upon you. And then it also says, it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe all his commandments. All these curses shall come on you and overtake you. Yeah, I think that's kind of what uh, you were referring to in the I'm Mosaic just, I'm, covenant. I'm making a, right, I'm making yeah. a difference between Mosaic and, and yeah. Adamic or creation. I see right. a difference between the two covenants. And I don't, is, that, is that what the Westminster is saying? Um, I haven't read this part. I well, know. see, that's where that, that's this whole terminology. What what they're coming up with is that he had made this covenant with Adam, and of course we see in Genesis two there's something formulated there. But there it is. If he had life, right. you lose it. There in the Mosaic covenant in Deuteronomy, um, if you follow the law, or if you don't follow the law, here are the consequences <coughs> of that. We're at the Adamic covenant there, if that be the case, if we want to call it that, which some do, then you have, uh, it, it's, it, all he can do is, is lose it. Right. And we know that the way that it's built around, when you look at the law, man can't follow the law. And evidently in God's plan, <clears throat> this was all a part of it. <clears throat> of course, Adam could not really do that and of course he represented man very well and we all fall in uh, the same way because of our uh, what is it our representative we have as we looked at last week so yeah um, so that that's a little bit different the covenant of works uh, that they present versus the covenant made with Moses usually we think of the Abrahamic covenant um, the Mosaic Covenant, some even mention the no Noahic Covenant, uh, but we definitely are familiar with the Abrahamic Covenant, uh, then the, you know, of course the Law of Moses, and of course we see how all of this, though it's all dealing with grace and God dealing with man, and uh, of course God built upon that, uh, gave more information as time went on, that you have the Davidic Covenant, and it really is, the qualifier there is the Messiah. It's Christ who is the one who's going to meet the law and follow it perfectly. And uh, it's through him, because of him, that, uh, of course, we can be righteous. His, his perfect obedience, we'll get into that in, in, a, in a little bit. So, um, and it's really all about what Christ did, right? So that's what where the covenant of grace comes in. I think we can understand how that falls into play here. Right. Let's go ahead and read that. The only covenants that count are the ones that God makes between God, God. <laughs> God and himself. <laughs> like, you know, the ones the that, unconditional he, that covenant. he follows through with. Yeah, yeah this will happen, mm -hmm. as he says, despite man, as he mentioned to Abram. Right. And... Uh, through and, and so that's the one that's going to make sure. Well, let's let's read this. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, 
wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. That is a paragraph, isn't it? I mean, do you see the gospel there? I mean, just a few short sentences, but uh, the way that it's worded and, and put, I think it was very succinct. And it gives the answer, you know, of what happened with man at the fall. And now we have uh, this gracious covenant that um, God now offers the sinner life, salvation. And of course, it's all through Christ. So we see the we see a definite difference between however you want to interpret that other other one the the point uh, above there a definite difference in uh, where man fell versus what God is offering here. Um, we know the human works of Adam is never going to be able to merit in itself eternal life. Uh, God, for the foundation of the world, already had a, a lamb that was going to be uh, prepared eventually. Um, Adam couldn't bring anything in, in his hands really to offer God. Man certainly can't today in his fallenness. So the covenant of grace is, is pure grace. Grace in every aspect. God paid it all. Everything. Um, did you by any chance ever read this section from the John Baptist Confession? I have. Because I think it, it, they would differ with this, right? A, a little bit, yeah. Mm -hmm. And matter of fact, I can't, I can't remember right now because... Um, and matter of fact, I think we've used it here. Yeah. I, I don't have it with me right now. I probably couldn't line it up on yeah. there. Uh, matter of fact, somebody has it on their phone, you know, they <laughs> could bring it up. It, it, Yeah, it's worded a little bit differently. Um, Zach's is uh, quite different than this also, and he split his up and had different parts at the end. And rather than being confusing for me trying to find this, I don't have it uh, up at the moment. Yeah, but, because I, here's what I think happens. Um, that... <clears throat> The Reformed Baptist tradition sees um, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Um, he's pointing to Christ, yet that's still not the new covenant. Does that make sense? So I think the Presbyterian tradition looks at Abraham and says that's that was the covenant of Christ. The Reformed Baptist would say, uh, no, that's also a that's a covenant of grace, but it's not the new covenant because it gets it still gets passed on by your offspring by your seed and so it ends up being you know, you end up baptizing babies <laughs> but because we're reformed baptists we actually see the covenant of Christ as a new covenant not as a covenant of Abraham even though it's still by grace okay yeah it's kind of hard to understand but i i think i'm, I'm and that's where the yeah um, the covenant theology is Highly, pretty well, for the most part, Presbyterian. Right. And so the other Reformed guys will um, kind of veer just a little bit yeah, on different right. ones. But they're basically saying they're saying they're covenant of the same grace, thing, but the and they both point to Christ. But Christ's covenant is not Abraham's covenant. Right. Whereas the Presbyterian would say, yeah, Christ's covenant is the same as Abraham. 
Yeah, and, and a lot of a lot of times they're word for word on things, and other times then you, you can see yeah a difference. Um, well, what do you have in you have the Proto-Evangelium, which is pointing to Christ. It's not as clear as what you would see in the Abrahamic covenant, but you see the first good news being mentioned about Christ or the Messiah. Um, of course, you think of uh, Genesis 3, 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And of course, as you see, the plan of redemption goes right on from here all the way on through the rest of Scripture. Uh, you read this for the first time, you wonder, who is this? What is this? What, what's he talking about? Of course, we, we already know. But this is really a promise of the Messiah, and this is where it's all started as far as a grace promise is concerned. Um, we'll get further elaborations, but we do get a promise there. Uh, Adam gets it. Uh, all of mankind uh, has it there. I think Zach just stole, like this is Zach's wording, right? This, this up here. What I have here, no. Huh? Oh, this is the original yeah. Westminster. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, okay. you know, I kind of, I was starting to run out of time because I was looking for the rest of what he had because he had it. He has one right at the end. He has a few points okay. there, and so I said, uh, you know, and to get it on here, right. I did this real quick. So the second paragraph of London Baptist is almost word. That's what I was going to say. Other than the first sentence, it says, "Moreover, man having brought himself." Under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make, okay, make, a, to covenant. make a covenant of grace. Yeah. And then it leaves out the second, yeah, that word to make a second. And then it picks up again where he freely offers unto sin. There's one word after that. Uh -huh. Yeah. So what were you talking about that was different? The, the, word, the word right there was. was it's in the London Baptist. It's not covenant there, right? No, it is. Okay. What What was the line? Okay, say that again. It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. Okay. Okay. So we ju we just have wording changes on that particular point, then, right? Is that what we're saying? Yeah. That's that was as man by his fall having made himself incapable. Okay, which is the same thing there. That's moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall. That's the only difference except please the Lord to make a covenant of grace and there's no the Lord after that. Okay. What were you talking about that was different, Alan? The, uh, <clears throat> the there's a there's um, a differentiation and so obviously it's not in this point. But there's a differentiation between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant of Christ for Reformed Baptists, because as I understand it. Presbyterians, uh, when they see Christ, they they go back to Abraham, and they say, you know, Christ is the fulfillment of that covenant that God had uh, made with Abraham. Okay. But um, the Reformed Baptist tradition, because remember, Abraham is by faith, but it still passes on by lineage, right? right? His sons, 
and that's why you have, in a sense, in a, in a very, like, it just makes sense that Presbyterians baptize their children, because it's still passed on by lineage, in a sense, even though it's still by faith. Um, but as I understand that, yeah, Reformed Baptists would not, they wouldn't see that, they would see Christ's covenant still graced also, but but in that sense different, because it's not... It's not anymore by lineage like it was with Abraham. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. But I don't know now where it is. I thought it was on this point. Yeah, I think there was just some variances in a few words there, but I don't think it made any kind of change whatsoever there. So what we have here is what God provides then. Uh, call this maxi grace. Man cannot make a contribution in this covenant, can he? And of course, you know, when you really think about it, all of this, the, this promise really starts, and this is unconditional here too, when he starts giving an answer. Uh, it's This is the good news about Christ there. Even though it may not necessarily have a name to this, it's there's a covenant to man in the sense that there is a promise made here. Um, but see, I just want to say, when you use covenant, sometimes it can be confusing because we, we know it takes two parts. But in what Mick was talking about, God is the one who makes the covenant, and he's the one that will make it happen. Um, so, yeah, he's like the, the giver and the recipient. Because <laughs> yeah. he, he reaps the reward. Overarching all these covenants is the covenant between Christ and God. Right. You're talking about before the foundations of the world. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then some will call that the covenant of redemption. And that was the you know the plan. Oh, we think about it. Uh, of course, what in in Timothy talks about for the foundation of the world and uh, you know the whole I mean, purpose Adam of God and the decrees. Christ, right? What's that? Adam points towards Christ. Well, he was the first Adam, and then Christ was the second Adam. So yeah. Not yeah, him being the first Adam, of course, he's the one that fell. The second Adam is the one that that brings us life. Yeah. Anyway, this mentions of of faith requiring faith in Him. Of course, we know that um, God gives the desire uh, to man to receive it. It comes from God. Um, man doesn't have anything in his hands to offer God. Christ has everything in his hands. Uh, he provides, he supplies. And uh, so the idea of grace is um, this is God's providing. Of course, an automatic one that, that goes with this. Everybody knows it. But John 3.16, uh, God so loved the world that what? Gave his only begotten son. Of course, uh, you have the belief there, but uh, there again, uh, it's uh, God makes that possible all through what God provides. Yeah, I think supplies. When I read that, I almost had a little bit of a I don't know a problem with it, and then I realized the reason they have to say requiring of them faith in Him is to to act. Yeah, to extenuate the the idea that. Christ, this faith is exclusive, you know, because uh, it, it, it gives way to the exclusivity of, of Jesus rather than just saying 
leaving that part out because it, it gives a, a requirement, and that's why they use that word requirement. Yeah, he, uh, and of course we know that uh, repentance comes along with that. Mm -hmm. uh, he requires repentance from every man. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's preached to them. Not that that's going to happen from every man, but that's uh, that's it. And and but but he's the one who supplies there again, provides that. And that's why the rest yeah. of it that uh, what do you call validates that that statement <laughs> because otherwise it's hopeless. Right. We we don't have faith of ourselves. Exactly. Um, Such gracious. Thought here, I I wanted to explore just a second with um, you mentioned faith, and you know of course we're all on the other side of the fall, but and you know man has been, <laughs> but I was just thinking in my mind, um, um, speculating about. Um, I guess I'm seeing that there is no hindrance to faith or believing or knowing God with Adam and Eve prior to the fall because they're created in, a, in God's image and likeness and, and there's no alternative. They have, a, they have a communion with God from the beginning, however long they were you know, before the fall or whatever. But, so I was thinking, faith, there was no hindrance to faith prior to that, it seems, because they were created, faith, they were created believers. They were created to have this communion with God. They, there wasn't any hindrance to them believing or knowing God. I mean, am I on to that? Yeah, right. right. I mean, right. it's like, they had, they had, they had, they had the knowledge, did you? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll see. That's what I get. That's, that's what I get for missing out. Okay, but it just happened. To, you know, when I was thinking, wow, what a, what a beautiful thing. You know, I mean, it's like we have all, and being as believers that we have, we we have numerous hindrances, even with the, the faith that He's granted us. Yeah. You know, even today, you know, we, uh, you know, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's a good point, Bob. That's that's uh, what a state of innocence, I guess, that they were in. It was yeah. quite uh, the grace of God, but at the same time, we see something here now, where there's uh, eternal life that is now supplied by Him. After that, um, the next one kind of deals with the the testament. Almost kind of ties back in. But when you think of covenant, you have to think of testament. And, of course, it kind of goes in with the mediator, and we'll, we'll be coming back to that. We're at point four already, aren't we? Mm -hmm. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. You have a testament, uh, a death of Christ. He's the testator. Here's where you get the word berit. And it's dealing with covenant, diatheke in the New Testament, uh, will. Audrey, Audrey's, you, you've kind of helped people write wills, right? I have. 
And that's what we're dealing with. Of course, you have a will, you have beneficiaries. And, of course, the picture here, you know, kind of breaks off. But, uh, you know, is what we're looking at uh, as far as Christ is concerned. You know, the beneficiary is going to get money or possessions, uh, house or who knows what, when that person dies. And it's, it's going to happen when, when they die. Um, the covenant idea is really a synonym of testament. The, the covenant is, is an agreement. The testament is, I guess what you could say, the, the, the kind of agreement that is brought forth. Uh, God agreed to give his own son, and we've seen that, because of our sins. And then he is raised again for our justification. It's all dealing with, with his death. And that's what secures life. So his death did that, and so it's a testament. Uh, he, he, it's his, not only his will, uh, he wills this to us. So the, the testament there is explain what uh, the covenant is. The testament bequeathed in the blood of the dying of the Savior. As he uses the word bequeathed, as therein bequeathed. That's got to be lawyer terms there, right, Audrey? <laughs> <laughs> so if you use the word testament, you have to use some terminology like that. So you know that's that's um, the idea. Want to look at Hebrews chapter nine, chapter nine for a moment, fifteen through uh, seventeen. Of course, we're getting into the mediatorship, too. So when you're dealing with covenant, you still have, you have to deal with a mediator. And, of course, that's what we're going to pretty soon here. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, a death took place. That's how you're going to have redemption of the transgressions, the sins that were committed under the first covenant those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Don't take that lightly, right? Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The beneficiaries, if you may. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead... For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, for whom every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There has to be the blood shed. There has to be this death of Christ. It was a violent death. And that's the idea. There's nothing magical in the blood in itself. But it's dealing with the very death of Christ. And the violence that was done. So the law, and it says one may almost, almost always you can say there's blood, but there was 
a particular sacrifice that was made like you think of a, a what is it a fruit offering sometimes you think of a flower offering and but most often you think of the blood of the bulls the lambs the goats so that's why they qualified that. But he's, he's talking about the importance of the shedding of the blood. The, the mediator's death is something that had to happen. It's the only way that's going to come into force. So that's, that's dealing with um, our last part of the uh, Testament part. 2 Corinthians 3 is something that we had done real recently too, if you might remember. I think it's around, I think it's around verse 6. Dealing with a new covenant there. Six through nine. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones, speaking of the Mosaic covenant, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, Mosaic covenant, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. And there's your new covenant comparing the two. It was the glory of that old covenant, um, the Mosaic covenant, but much superior. The new covenant fulfills it all. That's where everything is, is pointing to there. So we deal with the testament, death of the testator. Number five here, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises prophecy, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and the other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect and faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. So on the heels of that testament fact, um, this, this covenant at that time when they went under the Mosaic covenant, still yet the new covenant is pointing to Christ and it's prophesied, yet they, there were things that they went by, uh, those, the, the sacrifices, there he's talking about the promises, prophecies, uh, circumcision lamb, Paschal lambs, all the types that signified Christ, that pointed to Christ, even though that bull didn't cover their sins, it represented what was going to be happening, what would in the future would happen with the anti-type, which is is Christ. Is and this, so at that time, it was sufficient. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, go right ahead. Uh, um, so would like the the sacraments of today sort of be? Um, the the same idea. Yeah, yeah, they're pictures. Right. They help us remember as we look back, and you take the Lord's Supper, and we're remembering the Lord's death and all the benefits that come out of that. Quite a blessing, isn't it? They looked forward. Right. To the time that the Messiah was. There was one fixed moment in time. 
where the past and the future came in into that one time. Right. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a good thought there because that's what um, baptism and Lord's Supper do for us. They help us look mm-hmm. back. You know, they, they in themselves, they don't get anybody's right. salvation. Uh, the Roman Catholics would say that's how you get Christ. When you partake of uh, their communion, you take that host, you are now uh, taking in Christ. That's how you get filled with the Holy Spirit or get Christ filled at that point in time. And, of course, uh, that's, that's why the... And that's only a week. <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, maybe a minute or two. <laughs> oh, I always, I always remember yeah. the little kids, when you're Catholic, get their first communion when they're eight, thereabouts. Um, so they get Christ. But they don't get the Holy Spirit until they're confirmed eight years later. If they're lucky, now they push out of the past high school or something. Well, well, actually, it was like 12 or so when yeah. I did yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So. What happens in all that time? Yep. Sounds very safe. You know, like the it's a good way to get people to keep coming to Judaism. <laughs> you got to keep doing that. You got to. Well, that's the whole idea. You, yeah, you just said it. And that that's a works-based salvation. You have to keep doing this. They have to keep coming, and when they come, they're supposed to give, and that's what keeps the church going. <laughs> yeah, and, and Christ keeps having to die on the cross, too. Yeah. Bingo. <laughs> and that's in our Lord's Supper, in our communion, that's not what that means at all. You that know. sacrifice has now, but Hebrews says, there's once and for all. It'd be, uh, I don't know, I'm going to mention someone I worked with or I had a conversation with. And she got how weird it was for the Catholics to have the crosses with Christ still on there. She was like, that's not right. Like, she even, she understood, she grew up Lutheran, but she still could just, she got away from Lutheranism and all that, but she could understand how that was wrong. And I was like, you're on to something. <laughs> Hold that thought, you know. The work is finished, uh-huh. isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, the Old Testament people were saved the same way that we are saved. As they look forward to that sacrifice, they had the types, the figures, the prophecies and everything. Uh, And more and more came as time went on. Uh, We look back, but we're still saved by the grace of God. And uh, those things, those were pictures, building blocks that they had all the way on into the future. That's what this uh, is and uh, it never says do this and you will earn your eternal life, right? Um, of course, we know that uh, it's uh, it's this grace that's administered does that. Different mode, maybe uh, if you look back at the Old Testament, rather than uh, uh, the essence is, is still there. Look in Galatians chapter three, verse seven. Verse 6 is good to start with. Even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Of course, Abraham gives a picture of, uh, you know, where uh, there's a new covenant promised. 
course, in Ezekiel, you'll see new covenant promise. Jeremiah chapter 31, definitely there. Therefore, be sure that if those who are of faith, who are sons of Abraham, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of, of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Reminds you of Romans chapter 4. And there again, he's a picture. He believed God has counted him as righteousness. All those who believe God have the same kind of faith that Abraham did, as far as uh, in Christ is concerned. So he was, he was a believer. He believed God, trusted God, had the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, by the way, verse 14 uh, kind of ties it up. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Of course, later on in the New Testament time period, you see multitudes of Gentiles being saved, mainly through the ministry of Paul. And so Paul writes this to the Galatians. And so, so they received the promise. And there again, there's the, the faith element that's involved. Uh, the sixth one here is dealing with, um, of course, I think he's going to mention the sacraments there too, but under the gospel or the ordinances, under the gospel when Christ the substance he is the substance, right? Everything else. It, we saw types and figures and, and such for the Old Testament. Christ's substance was exhibited. The ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word. And this this is right where you were at, Mick. Mm -hmm. um, the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, you'll hear sometimes uh, the word and, and sacraments. Some people in Reformed theology and, and uh, even Lutherans will be speaking of that, sacraments of baptism, Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number, now they're comparing it to Catholicism, we have a lot less sacraments. They have seven, right? Seven sacraments in Catholic theology. And of course, remember, this is Reformation time. And minister with more simplicity and less outward glory. It's not so much outward. Yet in them it is held forth in more fullness evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So there we have grace, and we're all saved by grace through faith. Old Testament, same way. It wasn't because of their works that they did. Here today, we're saved the same way. Believe in God, trusting Him. His is the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, so redemption is brought to them by the covenant by His Holy Holy Spirit. So they had all their, their different things. And here now we have the Word of God, sacraments. That Those are the major parts of, uh, of worship, isn't it? What do you think of uh, I was about worship to say, today in the church? I was Worship concert involved in the, <laughs> that thing. Don't even there. mention yeah. it there, do they? <laughs> yeah. Music or nothing. Yeah. God has chosen to deal with mankind and salvation. Oh, the functions of the church. Yeah. Covenant of Look at Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus, one of the last 
statements he makes to disciples, and it's the Great Commission. And he says in 19, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that He commanded you, along with you always, even in the end of the age. So there you get yeah, the idea of teaching the Word of God, make them disciples, baptizing them, um, showing that they are true believers, that they've been baptized by God's Spirit. And so those are uh, two major ingredients in what the church is to do, you know, to bring people to Christ and teach the Word of God to them. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 25, dealing there with uh, Lord's Supper. Paul takes what uh, happened at the Passover. Jesus was... Uh, showing that the new covenant was getting ready to take place. Says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night, on verse 23, did I say that? In which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the, what? New covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Hey, Dennis. Yes. I was just reading a little note they have written here on the sacraments. Um, it says the Latin term sacramentum was used to translate the New Testament word for mystery. Whoa. Which would be mysterion, things that were not revealed before now revealed. Right, and then it says in time the term sacrament took on a more precise and narrow meaning. Yeah. All right. Always uh, find out new things in the, these study Bibles. <laughs> I guess that's why the good old Baptists call it ordinance. Ordinances. Yeah, they use ordinances, don't they? Yeah. Something that he ordained, he left for us to do. Yeah. Christ, Hold on. the mediator. Ah. Sorry. Uh, I just, Hold on. I've always, um, I've had an interest, you know, in how um, uh, those who looked forward to Christ or to the Messiah, like uh, how they were saved, you know, the old people in the Old Testament. Um, is there a... Um, set of verses or a specific because I'm I'm just I'm trying to figure out how to uh, you know they, you said they look forward and we look back but like we trust in this like it's like we know who Jesus was and they didn't know who Jesus was like because we you know because we can read about him and, and see him so uh, see him you know in the scriptures but um did they trust in uh, the sacrifice, or did, were they trusting in God's promise of of the Messiah? Yeah, and you, you have a very good question there. Real yeah. good. Matter of fact, we'll we'll end on this question. Okay. Yeah, and, that, and that's good because it sums it all up. Uh -huh. 
we've, we were in Genesis earlier, right? Right, yeah. First of all, you get the Prodeo-Evangelium. Mm -hmm. There you get a promise right off the bat, right after sin. God is so gracious to even you know, tell that right there. Of course, he builds on it as it as it goes through. And of course, he's going to deal with Noah. You know, there are certain promises there, you know, given. Um, Abraham is, you know, even even more. Um, Moses, even though it's it's law, God provides that. You see grace in there, but it's the law. Law condemns man. But you go back to the Abrahamic promise, which is God doing something that we can't do, that he will fulfill it. Then the prophecies come on and amplify on that. You, you look in Jeremiah 30, let's say, it talks about the new covenant. Okay. Now, as, as the Old Testament saints, of course, as it goes along, they're seeing more of it than they saw before. Um, they saw very little in Genesis 3. But there's something promised there. And so it becomes bigger and bigger. Let's think of the priests. The priests go in to, the, in, they're in the tabernacle. The people bring their sacrifice there. Let's say at Passover or any other kind of sacrificial times. They bring their goat or their lamb, bull, whatever, as they offer that. And like if you bring a lamb uh, to the Passover, this is a lamb you brought in even live with the family it's like a pet yeah. for like 10 days and they get to know this little pet and then they bring it in and the priest then is given that and he's representing innocence he didn't do anything to deserve what's going to happen to him and he's slit throat is slit blood spills out and you know they see how violent yeah. that is so they see a picture of a sacrifice. When the priest went in and did their duties, the priest knew that this was something to come. Um, this in itself, you know, even though they were supposed to be obedient in doing that, God requires even more than just bringing that animal. Yeah. And, 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 of course, it, it's going to be, you know, that trust in him it's really the ultimate sacrifice it's that messiah and of course by the time you get into isaiah isaiah 53 mm -hmm. that whole plan of redemption is is it's like it's fully developed yeah. it's almost like new testament theology isaiah is the most messianic prophecy there is, there is uh all through uh, especially those last few chapters and then the servant, uh, the suffering servant, Isaiah 50, 51, 52, 53, all in that area. Uh, it's pointing to one who is dying. How can they miss it? Um, the Jew today, they will explain, well, that was the nation of Israel. That wasn't, that wasn't Jesus. But they look to this Messiah. That's, it, the Old Testament person knew that that was the Messiah. It was developed fully. They didn't see it as clear even then. We we look at it now and we see it very clear, but still yet it's dim compared to what we will see. We see today in a glass that's that's dim. First Corinthians 13 talks about. But they saw enough. The priests knew what they were doing, and the people knew whenever they brought that sacrifice. Um, they had so many of those types. 
given to them. It was just building blocks. They didn't see it as clear as we did, but and that's what that's what the believing in God. Uh, Abraham believed God; it was counted to him as righteousness. That whole yeah. promise, and and the promise finally boils down to the ultimate promise in the Messiah. And we just read that in in Galatians, yeah. there, and Romans four, and that's how we're justified by faith. Yeah. And so, yeah, it uh, they they got a little bit of it. It wasn't really clear, but it was clear enough to save. Yeah. It's even, it's like, it's almost as if God, I'm not saying he doesn't give us as much grace, but it's like he gave them more, because we, we, we see it, like, more clearly than they did, and it's like, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't so dependent upon them knowing everything. That's like, why well, we incur a stricter judgment. Yeah, right. More responsibility. Right. Judgment starts with the household of God. Exactly. We have so much been given to us. Can you imagine? Yes, we know so much more in the theology that all lies behind yeah. it. Um, what a blessing. What's that? And yeah. The the fullness of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I think us. a good, good answer to your question would be Hebrews 11. That, kind of, that, that gives the mindset yeah, the whole chapter. It gives the mindset of people like Abraham. You know, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, by faith Jacob, by faith Samson. You know, all these people. Yeah. What they were thinking about when they did the things they did. And even after God stopped actually talking, you know, to some of the faithful, you know, there were then beyond that still the faith remained. Mm-hmm. How I don't know, but it's like you know. Well, that's why he never wanted him to deport himself from any other uh, nations or anything else like that. He wanted him to keep that heritage of what they once were taught too. So yeah, because it was all idols. handed down by mouth. Too. Yeah. So yeah. the idols, you know, brothers, pagans didn't come in and disrupt their understanding. I I think of the Bereans. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just meeting there. Apostle Paul comes and he's like, it's fulfilled. And they're like, let me check the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they were, I mean, they were full believers. you got to like those guys. That's, yeah. that's right. But all they had, what were they checking? The yeah. The and the Testament. Psalms, I mean, I, I, the Psalms are really good. Yeah. Point for that. yeah. You, I mean, it's throughout the entire... Psalm 22 yeah. it's so graphic there that you think of the crucifixion of Christ you know 22 23 24 and I just thought but also the, the emotion of the writer he's always saying God you have to save me yeah and uh, you have, you will provide for me or no one can be justified yeah. by if you should mark iniquity who would stand mm-hmm. yeah yeah, the gospel is all through the Old Testament. But it is. It's revealed more and more. And that's what the covenant does. It just gets more and more enhanced, fuller and fuller, till finally you you get the testator comes. Yeah. And it, because of his blood, then now we see it full, as fully as it can be until he comes back. No, Nobody has seen it as clear as what... 
the, the last 2,000 years have been. And of course, we get to stand on the shoulders of people like Augustine and Calvin and Luther and, and, and to take out what, you know, and from the early church fathers, you know, yeah. and, and, and how they saw it and how they wrote, wrote it. And so we get a, a good view by them being able to explain Scripture and tie them together. And it's a beautiful thing. And, of course, I think whenever Jesus was walking with the Emmaus disciples, yeah. there again, these are Old Testament people in the sense that Christ, well, I guess it's New Testament now because Christ has died <laughs> within the last 24 hours, right? But... Um, all they had to go on was that, and he started explaining the Psalms, the prophets, the law. Yeah, the the, that means the whole Old Testament. Right. He just opened it up saying, but see, it wasn't clearly seen at that time. Then you look, start looking at it, you go, my, if we didn't have the New Testament with our understanding, the New Testament reveals much brighter the Old Testament. Yeah. So that's an excellent question, Andrew. We could probably go on for that. That's that's good. Listen, uh, we're not even going to do the mediator tonight. Um, I'd love to hear that song you guys <laughs> have done with the mediator. That'd be a tremendous song. Anyway, uh, why don't we close with a word of prayer? Bob, could you lead us there? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Heavenly Father, for for tonight, for this gathering, and uh, as always for your word and. Uh, we just uh, just thank you for faith and for the, uh, the the chance to be able to learn more about you, so that we draw closer to you, Lord. Um, and uh, it it uh, it's a good thing that you put in our hearts that it's not just about believing what you what you give to us, what you reveal to us, but also to uh, just exhaustively want to know why it is the, that we believe these things, uh, that you uh, put it in us, Lord, that, that we want to search your depths and uh, get, get even more close to you through the knowledge of, of you, Lord. And uh, so... Thank you for uh, bringing us this far, and we know that you're going to take us all the way, oh Lord. And uh, we just uh, praise you for your grace, your mercy, and uh, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Till next time.